If you're heading out tonight, you might enjoy a strawberry daiquiri, a Cosmo, a pina colada, a Negroni with a cocktail umbrella, uh, or perhaps you uh, choose to avoid these concoctions that are unfairly considered, often, girly drinks. Well, girly drinks are just fine in the eyes of our last guest today, who's explored the history of women and alcohol, their roles in the making, serving, consumption and marketing of alcohol, and what a story she tells. Yes, the relatively recent wave of female brewers and winemakers have some astonishing predecessors, as you'll hear. Mallory O'Mara is the author of Girly Drinks, A World History of Women and Alcohol. Welcome to Saturday Extra. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. Look, it's a very large topic and it's very fresh. You really surprised me on a number of uh, pages. What inspired you to tackle it? Well, I, whenever I get into anything, I, I'm a bit of a nerd and I always want to read about it. And I had, in my early 20s, got into drinking craft cocktails and I thought, well, this is really neat. This is really fun. And I want to learn about the history of these drinks. And I started reading books about them. And I noticed that there was no women's history in any of them. And it wasn't until I read my fourth or fifth one and there was one sentence in one paragraph about how during American prohibition, uh, women had were welcomed into drinking spaces for the first time in America's history. And I thought, oh, my God, hold the phone, please. That's what I want to know about. There, there had to be history there. I just absolutely refused to believe that women were not involved in, in the history of wine and beer and whiskey and distilling and bars. I just said no. <laughs> well, how right you were. And you start your book with what's known about alcohol and women in Mesopotamia. But I'm going to hop along massively in time to the prohibition era of the 1920s in the US. Now, many of us associate that era with the temperance movement. That's what's been examined when women campaigned against drinking and the ills that booze caused society. You decided to look at the flip side of prohibition. What happened when the ban was introduced? Well, so many people associate that time period with women being against alcohol, but in reality, it was there were much more women on the other side of things, you know, women distilling, women smuggling, and what happened when prohibition happened is that, you know, up until that point, women were not welcome in public drinking spaces. So women drank in private in the home, and then all of a sudden, when alcohol was illegal, bars were shut down, saloons were shut down, everyone had to go in secret places, in private places places where women had already been drinking. So for the first time in America's history, women were welcome in drinking spaces because the private drinking spaces were all there were. So this is the the rise of the speakeasy. And can you develop that for us, please? Because it, it rolls off the tongue, but I think a lot of us don't quite understand what they were. Really, they were sort of secret private drinking spaces because, again, alcohol was illegal. So they were rooms underneath restaurants, underneath hotels, in the back rooms of places that were accessible by password or by code. And bootleg alcohol was served there. And it's funny, when you look in the movies, a lot of times speakeasies are rough-looking places. But in reality, because alcohol was illegal, the only people who could afford it were very rich people. So speakeasies were most of the time very, very high class places. The, the class division in America was very much on display then, was it? 
Oh, absolutely. It always is. <laughs> well, you know, because it was scarce and the, the supply absolutely could not meet the demand. I mean, you could pay almost $500 of today's dollars for a, a bottle of champagne. Goodness. And so you say that, um, in fact, drinking among women increased during prohibition. Yes. I mean, drinking among almost everybody increased, which is another funny part of, of America's great failed experiment. But it was because women, uh, things were changing. That was around the time period uh, where the flapper was introduced. Women were uh, more in the workspace. They were getting more independence. And prohibition was the time where there was a rise in a brand new hobby for American women, which was dating. Uh, up until that point, women were courted, and it was much more formal process. And now women were accepted into these public drinking spaces where dates were happening, and it, it just completely changed uh, American female social life. How interesting. And this is from about, what, 1927 onwards sort of thing? Twenty Is, is, it, is that about yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, so mid-20s um, mid to the, to, to, through the 1930s. Um, what if a woman couldn't afford to go out during this time? Well, she made drinks at home just like they do uh, during today. And uh, the cool thing about it is that's really where the uh, cocktails had sprang up. I mean, nobody knew more about making cocktails in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, even I would even say 50s as well than uh, American housewives. So they were really practiced and not only making the alcohol, but, you know, using the ingredients that were in their kitchens, cordials, liqueurs, they were, those were all things that women made. A lot of women passed down recipe books of how to make beers and wines and liqueurs to their daughters. You know, a, a lot of the ingredients that were being, you know, mixed up in fancy bars and hotels during that time period were started as uh, things that people found out about at home. So is that really how cocktails emerge? the world over, you know, a cordial or something sweet being mixed with a strong liquor that might make your your eyes water. Is that really the source of it? Well, cocktails actually had been invented a little bit uh, a few decades before that, but really they start, started getting very popular in the uh, early 1900s. They were America's first sort of uh, cultural export that the, the, that got the world's attention, um, that people were really, really excited about cocktails. They were called American drinks for a long time. Uh, and they just sort of sprang up because people were experimenting. But during the Prohibition, as you said, they became quite important because that was when nobody wanted to drink a straight whiskey during Prohibition because there was a high chance that it was made in a bucket or a bathtub somewhere. <laughs> and by the way, we're talking, I presume, largely white women at home What are, and in the speakeasies. Were they mixed? Were they segregated? Well, there are actually lots of black speakeasies as well. There are some of the most famous black performers were speakeasy performers, uh, but the speakeasies generally were segregated. There were some that welcomed mi the mixing of races, but most of them were either black uh, speakeasies or white speakeasies. Uh, but there were lots of black women and women uh, of other races who, who made cocktails at home as well. Um, it wasn't just something for white women. In your book, there's a photo of a woman during Prohibition whose dress has a lot of secret pockets for <laughs> bottles of alcohol, which would then be hidden under a coat. I mean, it was quite ingenious to see, actually. Oh, it's so funny because women actually were more successful at smuggling during Prohibition and 
smuggled more alcohol than men did because in the early days of it, all the enforcement agents for prohibition in America were men. So they weren't, in a lot of states, they weren't even allowed to search women because of, you know, yeah. propriety. Nobody wanted to touch women. So the women took advantage of it and filled up their skirts and uh, prams and <laughs> boots and all kinds of things. Eventually, people caught on and started hiring female enforcement agents. But even then, um, it was uh, women who were by far the more uh, successful and um, prolific smugglers. <laughs> Right. Uh, look, uh, if you've just joined us, Mallory O'Mara is our guest. She's the author of Girly Drinks, A World History of Women and Alcohol. And you focus in each chapter on particular women who do illustrate a- aspects of the story you're telling. Could you tell us about Gertrude Lithgow, who is a, was a successful bootlegger during, the, during Prohibition? Oh, absolutely. She's one of my favorites. Uh, there's a very common phrase, at least in America here, uh, called the real McCoy. You know, if you're getting the real McCoy, yeah. you're getting something that's genuine, that's real. Uh, and the reason why that phrase exists is because there was a very famous smuggler named Bill McCoy, and he was very notorious. But, and the thing about him is that people always knew that the whiskey and the gin and all the alcohol that he was selling you was real. And the reason he got at reputation is because of Gertrude. She was quite literally the most successful and famous international bootlegger in the world. She operated out of the Bahamas and she smuggled in real scotch, real whiskey, real bourbon. And she worked with Bill all the time. She would uh, load up one of her speed boats in the Bahamas with her pistol on her hip and then uh, drive the boat up to Florida and hand it off to Bill. And it would be sold throughout the U.S. And she, uh, she worked for a number of years and was extremely successful. But she was caught. finally caught, though. Yes, it's frustrating because part of the reason why she was caught is because she was a woman. The press was so enamored with this sort of romantic notion of this gun-toting smuggler, but they weren't really interested in her smuggling. They were more interested in like, oh, do you have a boyfriend? Oh, what kind of guys do you like? And they were constantly uh, paparazzi following her around. So it made her job very difficult to sneak. And eventually they caught up with her and she uh, had to had to get apprehended by the law. Um, she did, then she really turned what we'd say Queen's evidence. She, t- she then collaborated with the authorities and uh, gave all sorts of information about people with whom she worked. Um, and actually she spent the rest of her life enjoying the fortune she'd amassed, as you say, but keeping very much to herself. Oh, yeah, what a dream. She just lived in fancy hotels for the rest of her life, mm. uh, enjoying her fortune. She really, uh, she got away with it. I was also quite taken with a woman called Bessie Williamson. Um, she was a pioneering oh. Scot who turned America onto single malt scotch. Yes. Uh, it's interesting because nowadays scotch, especially single malt scotch, is thought of as the most masculine drink that you can have. Uh, but really, it was Bessie Williamson who was, uh, you know, a cozy, sweater-wearing, cat's eye glasses-wearing woman who she was the first and so far only female general manager and owner of the Laphroaig Distillery in Scotland. And she was so successful and so enthusiastic about her scotch that the Scotch Whiskey Association sent her over to America because in the 1960s, the America was still trying to get back on, you know, its legs underneath it when it came to the liquor trade. And, you know, the prohibition had ended in 1933, but people were still trying to figure out how to sell liquor to America. And back 
then blended scotches were all the rage. Nobody wanted to drink a single malt scotch, which is funny because today they're such a coveted thing. But back then, nobody wanted them. And she was convinced that with the right uh, coaxing, people could be convinced to do so. So they sent her on this big tour of America through different liquor stores and bars. And she talked to all these bar owners and liquor store owners about how if you offered it to customers and told them about it and, uh, you know, gave them a chance to get a taste for it, single malt scotches would really be the thing. And she was right. She was one of the most instrumental people in getting that changed. And now today, again, single malt scotches remain all the rage, the most coveted type of scotch. And it was all, be- it wasn't because of a man with a beard or, or someone who looked like Nick Offerman. It was, it was uh, Bessie. Bessie Williamson. Wow. Yeah. Look, I must ask you about abuse of alcohol. I know that you, you know, you didn't want to focus on this. You want to, because you say there's so much in that, but there must have been consequences uh, for all of this drinking. Um, do you bother to look at that? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one of the saddest things about the fact that women only were allowed to drink in private. When people are drinking in private, it's harder to regulate what you're drinking. And because there was such a bias against women drinking that a lot of women who had problems with alcohol were reluctant to go to a doctor to get help because no one, it, no one wanted it to you know, get out that a woman had been drinking. So a lot of women had, uh, had problems that went undiagnosed or, or unhelped during those early, uh, early years of the 1900s and late 1800s. And it's, uh, it was a really sad thing. Look, thank you so much indeed. Thank you so much for having me. Natalie O'Mara. And it is a clever book she's written, Girly Drinks, A World History of Women and Alcohol. It's published by Hearst. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations, live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.